Hello, welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at Freight Waves for all things related to the CPG and retail industries. I'm Mike Bowden-Distel, joined by Grace Sharkey, and today we're going to be talking about Kelanova, which, Grace, you should be an um, expert in since they're from your home state of uh, Michigan. Also hit on um, Ozempic's impact, potential impact on CPG. Talk a little bit about Amazon, and then we're going to interview Ed Smith, Vice President of Distribution and Fulfillment at Averett Express. We're going to do all that in 26 uh, minutes, so we're going to have to be efficient. Um, but before we do all that, I would like to make sure everyone has a chance to sign up for the Stockout newsletter. If you haven't done that already, you can go to www.freightwaves.com forward slash the Stockout. Uh, there it is. Go to FreightWaves.com uh, and right up there under Newsletters and the Stockout. Uh, you receive that every Wednesday or Thursday um, based on what's going to happen on, happening in CPG and, and, and the retail industry. And uh, with that as a little bit of, a, of an intro, I want to get into the first um, news story here. So Kellanova and WM Kellogg completed their separation. Um, and uh, Grace, what were your initial thoughts on this? I know you had some some thoughts earlier on uh, FreightWaves Now. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, well, I think you and I are both su- are not surprised that they didn't do the plant, plant-based plant mm-hmm, off mm-hmm. too at this time. Uh, it sounds like they wrapped up one hole, which I think was a smart move. Uh, the name is interesting. I will say I, I did more research and found out that it sounds like it was voted on by the company. Uh, there's some type of in, inside contest to, to come up with a name. So I'll support it a little bit more because of that. Uh, but overall, uh, you know, the market isn't too too fresh on it. I think what we're really seeing here is the uh, the the, op- the obstacle of snacking, right? We're seeing a lot more uh, businesses around the snacking industry uh, struggling. We have this. Uh, <laughs> uh, they brought this up in Conagra's call as well, but uh, this anti-obesity or food suppressant type of uh, drugs that are becoming a huge thing. People are looking to, of course, watch their weights and, and be a little bit healthier. And snacking is the easiest way to cut that out and, and to focus on that. So I think we're seeing the market point that out here in this time. I think long term, we'll see it definitely bounce back. But uh, yeah, it was surprising to see and still see it's it's drop in the market today. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. I mean, I think you know part of that drop there. I think the biggest part of it is the fact that they just you know spun off that North American cereal business. Which, you know, what's interesting is we sort of look at um, so so the existing shareholders, um, you know, got the you know spin off of the of the North American uh, cereal business, and um, it was interesting. It's just looking at the sort of the relative market caps of the two uh, of the two companies, and you know, one of them was um, you know what was it? I'm trying to get. My notes on the right page here, but but 17 billion in market cap in Kelanova and less less than a billion in market cap for WK Kellogg. So it's clearly the um, the, the the snacking portion is what the market seems to like, and I think that was really the justification initially for splitting the companies at the, at the time into three companies, where you had three different investor um, you know rationales, where the North American cereal business is kind of that steady as as she goes type business, good cash flow generator, uh, that North American cereal is is on a decline in terms of just sales. Fewer people eat cereal for breakfast than they used to. But uh, snacking, um, you know, for all, all your um, you know concerns there are, are, are valid. But, you know, a lot of the companies view snacking as being sort of one of the growth areas within CPG. And some of those companies are seem to be making it work pretty well, like, like Mondelez, 
Mondelez is the one that owns, you know, Oreo, Ritz Cracker, um, the premium saltines, et cetera, et cetera. They bought um, Cliff Bar recently. So that one has done well and is diversified into um, the, um, you know, some of the healthier categories. And, you know, they're, um, you know, that one's trading at uh, you know, almost 19 times forward earnings. And this, this Kelanoa valuation is about 14 times forward earnings. So there still is a pretty significant, um, you know, gap uh, there in terms of uh, valuation. And I think, uh, you know, the, 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 the rationale was you split those three companies the North American cereal business will be for the, that sort of dividend investor, you know, maybe a retiree once likes to put those those coupons. The the snacking business for kind of a growth at reasonable price um, investor. You know, most of those segments are growing, in at least the high single digits, if not some of them are in the double digits. And then there's that clear rationale for um, expansion in the international markets because those are primarily North American brands. But it doesn't seem like there's any reason why you can't sell those brands internationally. They do a lot of that, interestingly, with Pringles, where they have Pringles uh, tastes lo- localized for various markets a- around the world with, with, with a lot of flavors that you just wouldn't appeal to a, a U.S. Um, you know, palates. And then the plant-based business at the time, um, there was a 16-month uh, time difference between when the deal was announced and the completion. At the time, the plant-based seemed like it was still might really be... Um, you know, sort of the next big growth area, and you know that hasn't panned out. So that was maybe for a, a, a investor that was a little bit higher risk uh, tolerance. So um, you know, some of this financial, it was just kind of financial engineering, and, um, and you know, it didn't really uh, didn't really pan out. But um, you know, I, I think it's still sort of Kellanova still seems like a good investment, at least to, at least to me um, when you sort of think about how you know much some of these other you know comparable comparables are valued. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think long term, it's going you know, to clearly come back and not be an issue. And uh, I think there's just some different trends in snacking that we'll probably likely see them uh, jump into as well. Uh, the, the talks of right, like smaller portions and things like that. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I agree with that analysis as well. Yeah, they said something interesting as well in terms of um, you know kind of consumer behavior. And then the recent analyst call where they talked about just the, sort of the um, the elasticity or the volume was down about 4.8% in the first half, and that's on a 15% increase in price and mix. And so there is a little bit more, I think, elasticity. If, if, if you sort of think about that as being a response to higher prices, that consumers are being a little bit more cautious with some of these some of these items that are um, a little bit more discretionary. And then you bring up um, you know interesting point on all the Ozempic and similar um, you know products. Uh, that's something that you know go back a few months and um, just all of a sudden it's like went from never having heard about any of these things to just it, it being kind of kind of every place. I think the, the first time I ever heard about it was I think there was a joke on the Academy Awards that everyone in Hollywood was using it. But then like as soon as that happened, there there were just constantly you know articles about this and. Um, some of the stock analysts, I think, have an unenviable job because they have to quantify something, the impact of, on stocks that are difficult to quantify. And so no doubt they're getting questions of like, well, you know, wh- what does this mean for companies' market cap that, um, that, that sell snacks? And, you know, some of the things I've seen recently, that, you know, some of these companies have tried to put a number on it. So Morgan Stanley says that currently 1.7% of Americans... America's population is prescribed to 
one of these um, type of drugs. You know, Walmart says growing ex- extremely, you know, quickly. Of course, fastest growing you know, portion of, of their of their business. They also say it significantly reduces intake of high uh, foods, high in, in sugar and fat. I guess it makes people less, um, you know, less hungry. And so they get told that if you take this, you really have to focus on nutritious foods and sort of eschew any. Um, and sort of candy and stuff, because I think a lot of people who take these things lose a lot of muscle mass also and, and lean weights, which they try to a- avoid. Um, but then, uh, some of the, the, the thought from, from the, from Morgan Stanley was that they thought that maybe 7% of people could be taking the drugs by 2035, which it's hard to pin that down. That's where you have a lot of risk into the, into a, a an estimate. But, um, it was interesting that, Walmart just said that um, you know their drug the users that that buy those drugs at Walmart consuming about twenty to thirty percent fewer calories you know I mean assuming that that's what they're what they're buying at Walmart is what they're eating so you know, smaller basket sizes and it does seem to be having a significant impact on their other types of businesses at least for those customers and they can see what what the customer behavior is for consumers that are buying. Ozempic or a similar product, um, and, and what their rest of their shopping behavior is, and you sort of put that together and, and say, well, if if Morgan Stanley is anywhere close to correct, that seven percent of the people are reducing their um, eating by by twenty or thirty percent, well, then maybe it's not that big of a deal, and and, and maybe only the consumption of snacks decreases by two or three percent. But um, you know, the the risk seems, at least to me, that they're underestimating the the potential impact of how many people will eventually you know, be on a drug like that. But or, on the other hand, they could be overestimating it um, if there's some bad side effect or that, that we just don't know about yet. I think that's the kicker here is there, uh, to be very frank, there's people who are on the drug who are on the drug for serious health reasons and uh, diabetes and things of that nature. And then I think there's a, I don't know what percentage, but I believe there's a good percentage that are on it for just the weight loss aspects in particular. And I would not be surprised if we do start to see more of uh, a pushback on whether or not that it's healthy or even just uh, more control or regulation over the drug. Um, mm-hmm. And on, on top of that too, I just, I, I <laughs> there are people that I know that take the drug for diabetes purposes who are, are still snacking at uh, pretty close to the same level they're at before or just a tad bit less. So to say that uh, those individuals mm-hmm. will not, will be a hundred percent healthy, uh, well, that's not really what got them there to take the truck to begin with either. So it's a, we're talking about some huge, huge consumer changes of people taking it, plus some a lot of fingers already pointing at it uh, regulatory-wise, saying that this is not good and we need to figure this out as well. So uh, it's something I think we'll have to watch. But like I said, it sounds like there's already options out there, whether we make smaller portions or, um, of course, use better ingredients, et cetera. This might be the the chance for the plant-based snacks to, to take off, too. So uh, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a watch game in that matter right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, clearly it's something that CPGs, I think, are, are, are looking at and doing things like making smaller portion sizes, maybe trying to change the formula of some of the products to, to make things, you know, maybe it's more nutritious with, with protein and, and, and those things. So definitely something people, you know, it's a, something, to, something to watch. A lot of uncertainty there. I think maybe a risk to, to, to both sides now that the, the CPG stocks have maybe underperformed uh, this, this year. A lot of them have. 
Um, why don't we move into our next topic? And this is a big one. We could do a show just on just on Amazon uh, and, and Amazon <laughs> alone. Um, probably warrants its own show at some point. Um, you know, I, the last two newsletters I wrote about Amazon. Um, so uh, th- there's a lot. There's a lot that's interesting in this FTC um, lawsuit with the the 17 states attorneys general. Have, have you had a chance to to go through much of that? Uh, I, I've gone through like the initial case that it, it's touched on and a lot of the opinions here and there. I think that uh, I, I, I think I disagree with some of the the pushback. I think right now, the, I mean, well, a lot of what you and I report on, especially what I report on on a daily basis is the technology that's competing with Amazon or, or mm-hmm. companies like Walmart, right, who have their own third-party selling platform. So uh, whenever this comes back to this whole, you know, monopoly uh, price uh, pricing situations, for me, it's it's tough because there's so many different options that sellers can go to. to so to say that your handheld, uh, but also then we can talk about this too. A lot of the great perks that individuals are getting being a part of the Amazon fulfillment network when it comes to pricing on packages and, and delivery times, et cetera, you're, you're leveraging a lot. So it's, uh, for me, uh, I'm probably against what the, the average consumer might feel towards Amazon, uh, seeing that it's like, again, I report on this every day. There's so many different options and that mm-hmm. people can, can go to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I, I mean, it's it certainly, it's like if the, if, if the consumers, if the, if the consumers, um, are really getting, um, taken advantage of by Amazon, they, they don't seem to know it because like, the, like you look at the um, Amazon prime people don't, um, you know, stop subscribing to Amazon Prime very often, and the satisfaction rate's like ninety-one percent. Um, but I think the the bigger issue is maybe on the supplier side. Do is it is it virtually impossible to set, to make a profit on Amazon because you have to pay so many fees? You have to buy advertising. You have to use their fulfillment center to be to qualify for Amazon Prime. It does make it very difficult. Um, for CPT companies to, to, to earn a profit, which is next week's show. Uh, we're going to dig into this closely with Chris Mo, CEO of Cartograph. So um, I'm going to leave most of the, 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 the um, discussion for, for him. He knows it better than we're ever going to know it. Um, and with that, we'd like to, to move on to today's guest, um, which is Ed Smith, VP of Distribution and Fulfillment at Averett Express. Do we have Ed? There you are. It's a good, it's a good headshot, nonetheless. If if you're not um, there with with a camera, thank you for joining us. I'm here. Thank you for yeah. having me. Oh, great! Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, um, happy to have you. And uh, for for those not familiar with with Averett Express and the distribution and fulfillment um, services they offer, can you give us a little bit of a, of a rundown, please? Oh yes, sir. So Averett Express, we're a we're a uh, primarily we're a transportation logistics company based with an LTL model that's what we've done for the last 50 52 53 plus years and what's been great for us is we started building a distribution and fulfillment network somewhere around five years ago to continue to service our customers for all their needs so it's been a it's been a wonderful thing for us to add to our portfolio it's the fifth vertical in our in our company the, the first vertical i spoke of earlier was our ltl platform we've got our truckload platform we've got our dedicated group and we've also got our integrated group so out of all those assets, we're, we're, we're able to, to give customers everything they need. So it, it's, it's pretty, it's fit really, really well into our entire platform. 
and I'm sure customers are enjoying that that network as well. Can you tell us why uh, Avert decided to push uh, outside of just the LTL market in particular and, and really focus more on its fulfillment and distribution services? Oh, can you hear me? Oh, uh, can you hear me okay? The, I think we might have lost it, Mike. <laughs> yeah, one, one of those days, I think. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, I'm back. Hey, I'm back. There, there. I can hear you now. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect, Dan. Oh, I was I was just asking, uh, of course, the, it's great for customers of the LTL service, the expansion of everything now within your network. What pushed for that? Why was it important for Avert to go outside the normal LTL uh, capabilities? Well, you know, like every other company, we, we like to grow. We like to see what our customers need are and then from a sales perspective we want to listen to what they're saying and in all of this information and dialogue we're getting back from our customers same thing kept coming up back in 2000 really 2015 16 and, and further um it was more about hey what what else can you do with my goods what is the earliest point you can you can uh, grab hold of what we need and then distribute our goods and really from a with a portfolio like we have including our international department we start from a from a pure port side standpoint, where we grab goods as soon as they inbound into the United States, and then we start putting that in the supply chain wherever they wherever they see fit. If you've got product coming into to Houston, or where you've got it coming into Jacksonville, if you've got it coming into Charleston, or you know wherever the case may be, we've got the the infrastructure in place to grab those goods off the port, bring them into a warehouse distribution model, and send them wherever you need to whether that's a simple transload onto a 53-foot dry van that takes it to d distribution centers, whether it breaks out and goes to just your storefronts, or and then last but not least, we're all the way into e-commerce and direct-to-consumer. So um, I think that was just the natural maturation of the entire process when you listen to your customers. You know, it, it's for me, it's the organic growth from an LTL perspective right into everything else that our customers are needing today. Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. You, you mentioned that you built your fulfillment network out about five years ago. You know, how have the needs the, that the shippers have changed during that period of time? I mean, you hear so much about omni-channel uh, fulfillment right now and just speed to, to customers to compete with, um, you know, Amazon. Uh, you know, what, what, what is, has, have you seen on, on that? Yeah, so it's a great question. And right now, you've, we, we, we have right around 3 million plus square feet that we distribute across our Southeast platform. And within our network, what we found, and it's changed from the first conversation we had through COVID and through today, all of this changes pretty much on a dime, just as customers need. But your point is, I think the key word we heard years ago was micro-fulfillment, right? That was the thing that got it closest to the, to the end user and the consumer. Um, we still hear a lot of that same thing, but now it's now it's just in multiple micro fulfillment centers. How many of these places can you put up, and how many of them can you have to to best suit our needs to get speed to market? It, it goes right back to the conversation our customers have. You know, post COVID, you see the conversation turn into, well, I don't know exactly where I'm going to source my products out of, and I don't know exactly where I'm going to bring them into. But what makes the best sense is how do I bring it into the port that's closest to my demographic? Where are my end users and consumers? What what do I need to do in order to to gain access to that port? What vessel sailings come there most often? And last but not least, what can you do once they land and get into the into the U.S.? Where can you put them? And that's where we stepped up. We continued to add facilities 
and, and our main facilities stretch from Dallas to Houston to Memphis to Louisville to Nashville to Atlanta to uh, all the way to Charlotte. And then we've got other micro, smaller fulfillment centers that that tailor all the way around our our, um, our seaboards, whether it's in the Gulf or whether it's on the East Coast or wherever it is. But we continue to have more and more locations that give our customers more options to get goods closer to their to their end user and, cons- and consumer. Now, competing with Amazon on a model where I'm going to deliver it this afternoon when I pick it up same day from an LTL, you know, palatable large shipment. Not quite there yet. I don't know if they got the the beam me up Scotty that we can get to someone's front door yet, but we are very, very good at getting goods transferred from port to warehouse and then to end user as quickly as possible. You know, I want to go back to the sourcing aspect that you brought up as well. I'm interested, uh, of course, with all the, the talks and, and we've seen so many uh, companies coming back to North America uh, and just looking at their different options in particular. How, what kind of trends have you seen with your customers on on those sourcing questions and, and capabilities uh, recently over the last uh, the year or so? Well, you know, we 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 hear from our customers the same thing you read in, in your articles that you publish, and that is nearshoring is a conversation that everyone legitimately having, and that is just so people can feel more comfortable, in my opinion. So beneficial cargo owners can say, "I've got a, a tighter grip on my overall transportation and logistics, so that it, a it's more controllable from a cost standpoint, and b it's more controllable from a from a standpoint of getting it into the country and then distributing to a customer. So you've definitely heard more about South America, but you've really heard a lot more about Mexico. We've got a wonderful person, our vice president of sales over Mexico, a gentleman by the name of Ed Habe, does a wonderful job of keeping the pulse on that side of things for, for letting us know what's going to come in the future. And what's interesting, what you start to hear from a nearshoring platform is, what are my options and what does that turn into? If we start manufacturing XYZ product in Mexico and the land bridge gets more and more full coming up through Texas, what, what are the options? And there are other options and there's a lot more going on and a lot more conversations happening about vessels now carrying and not, not just being locked into land bridge. So if you distribute, if your consumers are mostly on the East coast, East of the Mississippi, you could log that into Mobile, you could bring it into Jack. I mean, to uh, Tampa, you could bring it into Miami. There's a couple other options that you can use now from a vessel stam- sailing standpoint that will get you into your network pretty much as quick as the land bridge is going to do. And, and I think customers, and then that turns into other conversations, but they might not be coming all the way to Mexico. It could be Turkey or Pakistan or you know wherever that next move turns into. But from an international scope, Avert having all the facilities we have strategically placed through that Southeast gives every one of these customers an option to bring their goods in and us be able to to handle it from A to Z, everything they could possibly need. And and for me, I think that's a, that's a beautiful blend for them to be able to see what my costs are and how quick is my speed to market. And then I can hold one carrier, one, one partner accountable to helping my supply chain prop up and get its goods to its customers. So I think the conversations are going to continue to, um, I think they're just going to continue to grow. Who knows what, what the next boom is going to be, but I think people are definitely looking to nearshore or have some more assurance wherever they go about what's coming out and how they're going to get their product. Yeah, I would agree with you um, there for sure. 
Uh, I also wanted to ask you on, on just on inventory levels. I mean, you have unique insight uh, into that. I mean, here we hear different things from different people on inventory levels. Some people say they've been right size. Some people say they've, they're still a little elevated. Some people say it's a case by case basis. That's kind of mixed. Uh, you know, what are you seeing on, on inventory? Yeah, it's such a tricky question, right? So, first and foremost, consumer spending has changed. We we all realize that. So does so do the beneficial cargo owners and the major manufacturers and the big box retailers. Everybody kind of understands that the consumer changed its way of spending things based off of post COVID, and call it whatever people want to call it from a financial standpoint. It's just a change, no matter what. Now you 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 make up a good point. Necessities and small parcel inventory levels. I think those continue to flow a little bit more. I think you see Amazon still having decent amount of orders and, and, and decent turns, but it's products that people tend to need and not so much want. And, and that's still interesting. But when you look at from a, from a standpoint of expenditures on larger items or items that might have non-necessary needs, those tend to sit. And I think some of that inventory has, has leveled off a little bit. I think some of it's still sitting kind of high. But you know, the one thing everybody's looking at right now and what we hear from the ports and what we hear from cargo owners and, and retailers are everyone had a mini, what's called a, a, a mini peak season from an ocean standpoint where they, where they bumped up a little bit, but they weren't real, they weren't over ordering and they weren't over allocating inventories just in case. What they're wanting to see now is what is that, what does the consumer spend look like from now until Black Friday? What does it look like post Black Friday into Christmas? And then that, I think, is going to really give us a good gauge on what we look like post-Chinese New Year next year. Um, and I think it's just too early to tell and, and, and too unclear for all of us to understand. But from an inventory level standpoint, some of our warehouses are turning product and some of it's sitting, again, just based on consumer need versus consumer want. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. We're all really focused, right, on, on what that demand will look like for the rest of the the year. Uh, you know, I'm interested, Ed, as as you continue to build out this network and and all these uh, really incredible initiatives, where where's Averett focused on right now? Is it building more warehousing units? Is it uh, the technology behind it? Where's your focus on improving this this incredible network and really this uh, capabilities outside of just LTL? Well, so outside of LTL, you, you start looking at, when you speak to me as the vice president of our distribution and fulfillment, there's a couple of areas that we're going to focus on really hard right now. And, and first and foremost for me is, is the, the platform in which we operate and the KPIs that we look like, we look at the labor analytics we look at. And then believe it or not, business, business intelligence from an AI standpoint. Artificial intelligence is going to get bigger and bigger from a business standpoint. I know when I say that out loud, people think artificial intelligence. I think a lot of people relate that to their personal lives. But from a business yeah. aspect, the more data we can capture on our, on our platform that actually helps us understand where our costs lie, where the savings lie, what our customers are looking for, all of that turns to just an easier way to quote, understand, and react to the, to the ever-changing and quickly changing markets, right? So from, a, from an AI standpoint, we have to be on the forefront of that. And we lean on our partners that we partner with from a, from a warehouse management platform standpoint. We lean on them to say, look at our data. Are we capturing everything we need to capture? And does it give you the analytics you need in order to create a bigger AI tool for us down the road? So for me, that, that's first and foremost, because if you're not looking at that, then I think you're going to be missing out on some really golden opportunities. 
The second thing for that is to continue to grow based on customer needs. Um, we see pockets in the, in the, in our platform in the Southeast and it, it, it interests us greatly. And we continue to invest in those markets. We are heavily looking at what looks like the next best trend for us. And that's based on years and years of experience, not just the 53 years in the LTL and transportation world, but also in the dedicated and the integrated and the international and now in, in the, in the, uh, distribution platform, I, I feel like we are poised to be set up as successful as we can be with a funnel that's ready to accept new customers and any needs that they have. We have a wonderful sales motto on our team at, at, at Averett from a distribution and fulfillment standpoint, and that is we're not going to build solutions for you. We're going to listen to what you say, and then you're going to create that solution with us, and then we'll blend that into your product. And to me, that just makes for a sustainable supply chain for our customers. Yeah, that sounds really valuable to have that type of a collaborative um, relationship with, with your shippers. Um, you know, Ed, we're um, about out of time here, but thanks so much for joining us. How can people reach out to you and Averett Express uh, for their um, distribution uh, and fulfillment needs? Yeah, you can go to Averett.com or you can edsmith at Averett.com, either one of those, and, and, and it'll take you, there are plenty of links to get you to our distribution and all of our other four verticals, is whatever people need. And the beautiful thing is if you grab on one of those things, then you can automatically grab onto any of them. And those assets just run, they're, they're just intertwined. We run them all together and we, we build benefits off each other. So that's the, that's the best thing about it. And I do want to say just thank you for the time. I, I know y'all are. I got on here a little late, returned to a to a phone call, but I appreciate the opportunity just to talk to you about Averett and all our possibilities, and then what's going on in this in this crazy logistics world we live in regularly. Hey, well, we all love it, and thank you so much, Ed, and uh, thank you, of course, uh, Mike, for doing this for our audience. Uh, you can check us out next week and watch out for the newsletter in your inbox as well.